Listener Production. One night when Crispian Cham was just eight years old, his life changed forever. It was the night his family's Chinese restaurant was firebombed. And I remember seeing the yellow crime scene tape stretch all the way around the restaurant. So I knew this was serious. But the most important thing that I remember was the smell of the restaurant, the burnt restaurant. The fire started in the storeroom and spread quickly into the wooden beams in the ceiling. That chemical, strong acrid smell, sharp, mixed with burning wood. Everything was damaged either by fire or smoke. When I, when I walk now past burning rubbish, I am triggered back to that smell of the restaurant when I first stepped out of the car. Although it's not yet been determined whether the restaurant was deliberately lit, the arson squad is carrying out an extensive investigation. Before that extensive investigation found the perpetrators, four other Chinese restaurants were also firebombed in Perth in the months afterwards. At the same time, there was a wave of neo-Nazi anti-Asian posters being plastered around Perth. Like imagine entire streets suburbs covered in racist posters and they had these horrible messages like Asians out or racial war, white revolution, the only solution. And they didn't just target Asians. There were also racist posters about other people of colour and the Jewish community. And it didn't matter whether you tore them down, they'd come back the next day. So was there any connection between those racist posters and the firebombed Chinese restaurants? Well, the answer is yes. Now, years later, Crispian has unravelled the whole story and as an adult, he's gone on this bizarre journey to try and meet the neo-Nazis who firebombed his family's restaurant in 1988. So why would he do that? Well, we'll find out in this briefing. First, here are today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, the 23rd of August. You've been hearing about it for months and months, and now there is finally a date. The Prime Minister is expected to announce the date of the voice referendum for October 14. So there hasn't been an official announcement yet, but it's being reported in both News Corp and nine newspapers that the date will be announced next week in the must-win state of South Australia. And that would trigger a six-week campaign. And polling suggests South Australia would likely be a referendum decider. So for The Voice to go ahead, the Yes campaign must win both a majority of the national vote as well as at least four of the six states to be able to successfully change the constitution. Yeah, so we've got a few leaks going to the newspapers, so that's what they're predicting will happen. Next week we'll get the big announcement. The date will be October 14, as predicted by me on this podcast, between <laughs> yes. the, the footy grand finals and the Melbourne Cup. People switch off after the Melbourne Cup. Yep. Too much going on before that, leading into the big sporting finals, and plus we've had the World Cup. So there it is. It makes sense. It'll just be great to get this going. There's been so much discussion, mm. um, so much oxygen sucked out of the Yes campaign the longer it's dragged on. Let's, let's have the vote for real, have the arguments, and hopefully move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I know South Australia is a key place 
for this, but I know Western Sydney and the multicultural vote in Western Sydney is also really pivotal for this campaign because we saw with the same-sex marriage plebiscite that they underestimated just how conservative many communities there are. They had the highest no vote. Mm. And a lot of people would think that other people of colour may be yes allies to First Nations people, but there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of, I would say, also blatant discrimination Um, sometimes even hostility or misconceptions amongst refugee and migrant communities in their perception of First Nations issues. So I know that that's going to be another key battleground. Tax fraudster Adam Cranston, who's the son of the former ATO deputy, has been jailed for 15 years. So he was found guilty over his role in a $105 million tax conspiracy following a trial that ran for nearly 11 months. A jury found that Cranston directed the tax scam and laundered money through his company, Plutus Payroll. Yeah, and Tom, his sister Lauren was also involved and she was previously sentenced to eight years. And this is just a a really huge and and brazen tax white-collar crime case, really. And what's made it even more interesting is that it was committed by the son and daughter of a former deputy ATO chief, even though he's not accused of any wrongdoing. Yeah, this brings a crazy story to an end, really. Um, we've been waiting to see what the sentencing would be and they saved Adam Cranston till last 15 years for mm. what he did. Him and his sister defrauding the tax office. Their dad, the former deputy tax commissioner. Um, it's just an unbelievable story and they're paying a huge penalty for what they did. The federal government has announced a rewrite of the $13 billion Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It came out of a period of environmental catastrophe and it's designed to avoid another environmental catastrophe. We know that the next drought is just around the corner. That's Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek. So this means the controversial water buybacks will restart in New South Wales, South Australia, Queensland and the ACT. Victoria has not signed up for the new scheme because it's worried about the economic impact of buybacks on their agriculture. The plan is meant to bring the basin back to a healthy and sustainable level by limiting the amount of water that can be taken out of it each year. Yeah, so more water for environmental flows, really, rather than irrigation um, for farmers. But yeah, if they haven't been able to get Victoria on board, that's That's a big blow for Mm. the scheme because there's lots of irrigation that happens around that part of the Murray River. Coles is boosting security after a 20% increase Mm. in theft. So their profit figures came out yesterday. Profit is up nearly 5% at $1.1 billion. So yes, despite inflation, they're still making more money. Who would have thought? Um, But I think the rise in theft is the most interesting figure there. Yep, it's super interesting, but it does follow a similar trend in the US. And that's largely like attributed to cost of living pressures, but also organised crime. And the Coles boss said that's the same here. It's not just the loan shopper scanning a few extra items and sneakily putting, you know, not scanning someone, putting yeah. them in the trolley. But there are some people who are organised and they're going for those kind of higher value products. Mm. Yeah, so the organised criminals are getting things like medicines, yep. beauty products, are those sort of things, but the loan shopper is not swiping things like meat, so staples that have become really expensive. Yeah, or there is that like brown onion trick on TikTok where you weigh the brown onion but you really put in cherries or, <laughs> or, or something else. Or there's the switcheroo which is more labour intensive and you take one barcode or label off and you put it on, oh, wow. on, on something else. I mean, I don't really have time for that. And I don't know, like people have been swiping stuff and by swiping I mean like not swiping 
since self-checkouts have become available. Mm. Like this is not new. What's new is that it's happening like far more often. And I just want to know, Tom, what have you done? At the checkout, or what happened? You swiped uh, at the a, checkout. I'm a goody two shoes on on that kind of stuff. I just couldn't fathom being caught out and how embarrassing that would be. So I basically swipe it all. I think the only thing I've ever like not swiped was a maybe a brown paper bag where I was so annoyed that I hadn't brought my own bags. I'm like, yeah. I'm not paying for an extra bag, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've done that on multiple occasions, and I have considered when I've got like the crappy green bruised apple to weigh it in and pass it off as the Granny Smith apple. But I haven't done it. Wow. But I see that I do I do see the temptation. The, and great, I, the great apple heist. Absolutely. And I reckon a lot of people like I just reckon a lot of people do that. They're like, you know what? I don't get a lot for a hundred bucks in my trolley anymore. I know Coles is making too much money. I'm just gonna do it. I'm taking back some of the profits one apple at a yeah, time. Yeah, they're like rob, <laughs> Robin Hooding one apple at a time. All right, we'll catch you later, Antoinette. Now to talk about this incredible firebomb story. Crispian Chan is with us to talk about why 35 years after his family restaurant was firebombed, he went on a search for the neo-Nazi gang who did it. It's all part of an amazing new podcast called Firebomb. It's the latest instalment of the ABC Unravel series. Crispian, thank you so much for joining us. Take us back to that night in September 1988 and the months afterwards where four other Chinese restaurants were also attacked in Perth by these arsonists. What impact did this have on you and your family? I mean, I was only eight years old at the time. Uh, so I, in some ways, barely understood what was going on. In fact, in fact, you know, some of the early memories I have of that first morning after the, our family restaurant was firebombed in the middle of the night, I remember on the way to school, mum taking us. I was excited by the fact that I was seeing crime scene tape around hmm. the restaurant. You know, the smell of burning uh, wood. Um, I even took... Uh, burnt glass tumbler from the the counter and and took it to school for show and tell, which mm. just kind of demonstrated just the the lack of understanding at that particular moment. But for the rest of the community, I mean, that was a, a really scary time um, where you had a string of Chinese being firebombed. But not only that, there was also um, racist posters being posted around. And that was happening for almost a year or two before the firebombing even started. All right, let's have a look at the police investigation. By the third fire, the target and the modus operandi had become sufficiently cohesive to be able to identify it as a serial set. The red flag started to go up, then that um, it was becoming more than just a coincidence. So you can hear there that police were on the trail and finally they did work out that this series of fires was connected to those anti-Asian posters and was indeed the work of a neo-Nazi group called the Australian Nationalist Movement. What did their investigations uncover? What was the extent of this group's training, equipment, their activities? These guys were ambitious. They were led by this man called uh, Jack Van Tongren, who was this uh, Vietnam vet. And they wanted to drive Asians and other minorities out of the country and to create and maintain a white Australia. The police kind of uncovered that you know, these guys were trying to organize themselves as a paramilitary group. And they went as far as even running for a state election. And during that period, they even staged their own fake assassination attempt in the lead up. Wow. 
So what was fueling this hatred of Chinese families in Perth? I guess there was a, a wave of Asian immigration that came to the shores of Australia and multiculturalism was, was a very new idea back then and it took people to a, a while to adjust and I think mm. Asians became one of those targets. Mm. Well, I guess that all goes to the heart of why you took this whole journey to find these neo-Nazis 30 years later. So we'll get into that. Um, I will note that the the leader of the group, Jack Van Tongren, who you mentioned, ended up serving 12 years over this. Eventually the police did get some kind of justice here for for the victims, but you clearly didn't think that was enough. You felt there was more to learn or understand about this, and you've gone on this wild journey 30 years later to try and personally go and meet some of these people. Why have you done this? Yeah, it's a story that has been with me for 30, 35 years. The idea of new Nazis roaming the streets of Perth in the 80s was such an absurd concept. But yet at the same time, right now we're seeing in the streets of Melbourne, Nazis walking around and sig hailing. And I just can't help but wonder, you know, what have we forgotten from that period in the 80s? What haven't we learned that we are seeing the repeat of this happening again? And I guess my fear is that, you know, maybe there's certain things that we haven't learned from this and there may be a possibility that this may all happen again. Okay. So you want people to be aware of the threat of far-right extremists, but that doesn't answer the specific question about why you wanted to go and meet some of these people personally. What what did you feel would come from that? What What would you learn or understand or what would be the point of it? For me, this is, this podcast isn't just about me chasing Nazis. You know, this story is about actually trying to take control of a story that has been forgotten and try and tell the full story. Because I think back then there was a big focus on the neo-Nazis and what they did, but there wasn't much stories being told about what happened to the victims Mm -hmm. and how it affected them. And I think, you know, part of me confronting and talking to these people was to tell them exactly and see how that time of 30 years has perhaps changed their perspective or see, let them see what that effect has been on our community. Okay, so in the podcast, you go on this journey, you go and meet or try and meet Jack Van Tongeren. And if people want to find out what happened there, they need to listen to the whole thing. Um, one thing we are able to look into right now is the interaction you you did have with one of the members of this gang. You actually go and meet this guy called Ben Verheim, who was part of the group that were putting up these racist posters around Perth, and you track him down running a bizarre men's health retreat, which he made you take part in before he would speak to you. Let's have a little listen to some of that. And taking a seat on your yoga mat in a cross-legged, easy pose position. And when it ends, we get up, we're moving again, and we're chanting. Then all of a sudden, things kind of escalate and we're screaming into each other's faces. Breathe in that deepest hurt you've ever felt and scream it out. So that just sounds, there's chanting and all kinds of strange stuff going on there. Tell us about that experience of, of meeting this man in this context. When we found Ben, 
Um, he's, you know, a de-radicalized, no longer a follower of the Australian nationalist movement. And this is his way, I guess, of trying to kind of redeem himself, I guess, in one way, by uh, running these groups to help men deal with their own traumas and to heal from that. So we didn't know what to expect when we rocked up. Um, we turned up to this farmhouse in this beautiful countryside. We were doing yoga in this cow paddock um, by this dam we went for a swim in there and then we went and did ice baths afterwards we had a sound meditation and and after all of that was then when we had the opportunity to have this interview with ben and and in that interview we you know it was a very honest um it was a very confronting and frank discussion but you know i think there were some things that were revealed between us that i think uh, you know a lot of people find interesting or, or not interesting yeah, let's listen to the moment where you ask him about whether he remembers postering your restaurant. You might remember it had been the Manlin Chinese restaurant. It was on Manning Road. I'm just wondering whether you remembered... Manning Road. ...if that was one of the ones that you hit. I think it actually was. I remember I was driving a ute. It was a work ute. I do remember that, and I'm sorry. I've heard you. Yeah. I've heard you. So Crispian, he apologised for it there. Did did that mean much to you? It was odd. I, I, I was, I guess, numb in some ways because I wasn't expecting to hear that. I appreciate the sincerity of what he said, but, you know, I think I've moved past that point where I needed to hear that. So, you know, it was nice to hear, but, you know, it wasn't closure for me necessarily. And so overall, what did you learn or, or gain from going and finding these people involved with these horrific hate crimes? What did you learn? Was it worth it? The thing is, is that Jeff Antonio wrote a book during prison and that story that he wrote about his exploits in the 80s is now being taken on up by neo-Nazis now. And wow. um and I think it's really important to kind of take control of that narrative and to tell the full story about the fact that the other people side knew Nazis involved, the police, the government, community groups, the restaurant owners. I mean, we even had vigilante ninjas walking the streets at one point. Mm. You know, for me, this is uh, an Australian Asian story as well. And I want to make sure that when we retell this story, that we get the full picture and, and also, hopefully, we learn from that what we need to do to deal with the current situation with the neo-Nazis that we have now. Yeah, that's a frightening reality that Jack Van Tongeren could write his ideology during his time in prison, and that can be circulating now, um, influencing more young people to take on those extremist views and literally dangerous views that inspired acts of criminal violence. What are your thoughts after this whole journey on on the best way for us as a society, uh, for our security agencies, for everyone to deal with this ongoing threat. These guys were allowed to put posters up that said Asians out, racial war for th almost two, three years. And I think what I'm seeing again now is the fact that these guys are allowed to walk around SIG hailing. I mean, maybe we need to look at the laws that are addressing hate speech. Are they strong enough? Or are they too strong? And that's another debate that's going on. But, you know, what are the consequences when we do allow hate speech to occur and be seen? It's complex and there's layers to that, but we need to start somewhere. 
That was Crispy and Chan, and just such a mind-bending story. There's so much more to it that really was just a snapshot of the full story, and you can get that by listening to the podcast. It's called Firebomb. It's the latest season in the ABC series called Unravel. Listener.